Hey everybody, we'll get to the show in just a minute, but before we start, I just wanted to talk to you real quick about something we're doing here at Lions of Liberty, trying to help out uh, with the coronavirus. Um, If you've heard an interview earlier this week that ran, if you scroll back in your feed, you heard an interview with Gret Glier of DonorC that Mark did. That's Gret, like Brett, but with a G, and uh Gret started DonorC as a way in order for people who are donating to charities um, through DonorC, it allows them to actually see the money at work. You actually get updated with the videos to see your money in action. And what DonorC is doing with their coronavirus initiative is they're going to be helping people in the poorest parts of the world deal with the coronavirus. So what we're doing at Lions of Liberty is we're giving 10% of our patron money, of our Lions of Liberty Pride dollars, which we thank uh, our generous patrons so much uh, for supporting us. We are turning around and trying to help out with this crisis. So if you'd like to be a part of it, um, if you're not already, um, you know, we would love to have you in our Lions of Liberty Pride. Go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And please Check out Gret Glier and the great work he's doing at Donor C. And you can find out more specifically about this project by going to donorc.com slash coronavirus. Thank you. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. What is Felony Friday? Felony Friday is a show where every single week we're going to do a deep dive and we're going to examine and expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, if this is your first time listening to Felony Friday, your first time listening to any of the shows we have here on Lions of Liberty, sit back, relax, enjoy the show, put your feet up. If you're driving, please don't put your feet up. But if you've been back several times, if this is a regular habit of listening, why haven't you subscribed? Or maybe you have subscribed. Thank you if you subscribed. But if you haven't, please do so. Whatever podcasting app you're listening on, please just scroll up to the top there, punch that subscribe button, and uh, you'll get every single episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast and of Felony Friday delivered to your little listening device. And also, if you really enjoy what you're hearing here, please think about uh, giving us a a five-star rating and a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, especially if you listen there, because it helps with the algorithms and all that crazy stuff. Without further ado, let's get rolling with today's show. Today, my guest on Felony Friday is Andy Williams Jr. Andy is a licensed Baptist minister. He's a social entrepreneur, an activist, and a libertarian candidate for president of the United States. Um, Andy is a guy who has had some, he's had a tumultuous past. Uh, he's made some some mistakes, like so many of my guests have made mistakes, has paid a price for them. Um, but with Andy, he wants to make sure to use those uh, to fuel his fire in his quest for justice. Andy, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
Yeah, well, thank you for coming on the show. I'm uh, looking forward to getting to uh, to talk with you and for my audience to get to hear your story. I've had a couple listeners of uh, of my show reach out, and I guess they heard you speak, um, maybe at libertarian conventions across the country, and uh, they said you got to get this guy on. You gotta you got to get his story out there. So I said, all right, <laughs> let's do it. And uh, so I'm I'm excited to uh, to learn more about you and. As we were talking about in the pre-show, uh, you know, really where I like to start with people is just for everyone to really get an idea of, you know, where you're from, um, where everything started for you. If you could just start out by sharing with my audience a little bit about, you know, where you grew up, your background, what were your early years like? I grew up in Aurora, Illinois, uh, it's the second largest city in the state of Illinois, next to Chicago, which I don't, you know, look at Chicago. I don't know if you really call that a, a big thing because Chicago is in its, a, you know, it's a own city, its own self, several little cities in Chicago. But um, I grew up in Aurora, Illinois, was born October 10th, 1972. And my parents, my dad and mom separated when I was two. And my dad started dating this uh, white lady, German lady, Bridget Bridget Williams, my stepmom. And so for about 10 years, I was raised with her. So I had a middle-class home. She worked at a factory. And my dad owned his own construction business. Um, my stepmom was a disciplinarian. You know, she, she was the one that made sure schoolwork was done, chores were done. Um, and, and she was the authoritative and the disciplinarian. And the way that I was <laughs> disobedient brought on what I would call a severe punishment. And in today's time, it would be child abuse. Um, but I look back and just say that's what she did based on how she understood to discipline and love, you know, a little rebellious little child, which I think I was more curious than rebellious. Um, but then they went on to have two children, two two younger brothers, and I had one older brother. And uh, my childhood, for the most part, was, was great, other than being on punishment. Um, and when she left when I was about 12 years old, I got involved in games. I, I, I didn't have no accountability to have to be home after school, homework, you know, my dad being um an entrepreneur owning his own business, I learned his schedule, like what jobs he was working on. And me getting involved in gangs wasn't like something I got jumped into or nothing. I just started hanging out, walking home with the the black kids and just wind up being guilty by association. But in grade school, because that, that was middle school when I was being able to actually pursue my relationship with the gang members, um, Mm -hmm. the black ones, because in grade school, all my friends were were Hispanic. They were Latin Kings and deuces. And I looked up to them because it was cool. You know, like I went to a predominantly Hispanic grade school and my stepmom wasn't having it. So, you know, no matter what I would try to do, she was, you know, that, that watchful eye over up. I don't know what you're up to, but nope. But take the shoestring out of your shoe. You know, I try to use the dye, the color dye, to make a green shoestring. And she was like, no, no, no. Um, but when she was no longer there, 
you know, I just started hanging out with the with the gang members. Um, was was that pretty? I mean, was that pretty common for uh, you know for you, your friends and you know the rest of the kids you're going to school with to be in gangs or? I say it was half and half because um, I had a, a a best friend, Jonathan Hughes. He had a two parent household, and we were both smart. He didn't do nothing with gangs. I just thought it was cool, you know. Um, I didn't have, I don't have the story that said I got involved in gangs for protection or nothing like that. I, I if if I would not have went to the middle school Waldo, I would have wind up being part of the Latin Kings or the Deuces because the school they predominantly went to was a, a middle school called Simmons. And one of my friends, uh, Dennis Evans, who wound up getting murdered, you know, and, and right after middle school, I think like the beginning of high school, um, he was a black kid and he joined the, the Lat- Latino gangs. And I think he had a single family house. I know he had his mother. I don't, 100% remember, but then a lot of my friends that were black that went on to that school, they just joined the gang. That was that was the culture. That was the neighborhood. That was the environment, you know. So, and and some of the Latino gang members, they had two parent households. So it wasn't like you know. Again, I can't speak for them person. I just know how I look back now and see all that. It wasn't like we had broken families or something like that. At least not from the outside. I just think when you don't have, uh, let's say, a boys and girls club or, you know, certain extracurricular activities that nurture the creativity in young kids, you know, I think if I would have went to a monastery school or something like that where I'm allowed to think independent, who knows? I would have, I don't know what I would have, I would have been exactly what I am now because I'm independent thinking now, so... Yeah, well, I think I think like like a lot of people, probably a lot of probably a lot of libertarians. Um, you know, it's kind of at least for me, it was you know, it's it's kind of ingrained in you from an early age that I was never interested in in the you know the topics I was learning in school. I mean, there was a little bit here and there, but you know, thinking about other things, thinking about ways to be creative, and probably you the same. Maybe you know, the gang was sort of was sort of an outlet for you. Yeah, I I, I do think so. Um... I when when I started hanging out with the gangs in middle school, um, I became uh, I was already stealing little stupid stuff all the time, and then I would always watch people, you know, and learn people, and then I would see the older guys, drug dealers, whatever, uh, listen to music and stuff. So I would go complete tape orders for them. Like, man, I got you know, 10 tapes for 50 bucks or something. And then they were just an entrepreneur. And that's just, you know, how I just started being real popular with them. You know, when I was in in high school, uh, I started working at a grocery store and I would sell Word Up magazines. That was like the hip hop where you would have all the rappers and stuff in these magazines. And everybody in the school, you know, would have those Word Up magazines when they come out because I'd be stealing them. Bringing them to school, selling them for two dollars a magazine. Sell you a pinup for fifty cents. Be like, it's cheaper to buy the whole book. I just want the pinup, Andy. So <laughs> that's just what I would do. And then when I would get suspended from school, I'd get to hang out with my dad in his construction business. So um, he would always threaten to, you know, I'm gonna discipline you. But he he followed through twice. 
but he hardly ever would follow through. And one time in eighth grade, he spanked me in school. <laughs> it's a concerned parent. Man, I'm like, mm -hmm. the old school know me. Dad, don't. Embarrass me. I was embarrassed. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, so eventually you ended up uh, dropping out of high school, right? Yeah, I flunked in ninth grade. Um, and so when I went back, you know, which would have been my sophomore year to freshman year, I didn't have like our ninth grade classes, but I had a ninth grade homeroom and that was embarrassing to me, you know, because I knew like I'm way more smarter than that. I just was like, no, I'm embarrassed. I don't, I don't want to do this. So I was like, forget going back to school. I'm not doing it. I just had to figure out how to lie through my dad and that only lasted so long. And then I wound up just moving out because he kicked me out, which he didn't. I mean, I just slept in the garage at my friend's house. That just became another avenue for me to just start still in the support of lifestyle of fancy clothes or, you know, what I thought was in, you know, but I also would cut grass on the side, shovel snow. You know, it wasn't like I just was total like a criminal, but I was, again, an independent thinker. I wanted to do my own thing. And my dad, I think a lot of times people think that, you know, um, if you don't have a dad, that's what leads you astray. No, I had a dad. You know, I still do. Um, I just was disobedient. And mm -hmm. so if I didn't follow the, the rule, rules at home, Pop said, you want to be grown? Well, be grown then. So I did. Yeah. So so how long, um, how many years later until you got arrested for the first time? I got arrested as a juvenile um, for snatching a gold chain. Um, and then from the, I, I think my very first arrest was, I was either mouthing off at the police or doing something. And back then, you know, I'm 47, right? Yeah, 47. So back then I probably was like 15 or something. And, uh, they didn't arrest you, you know, like they would talk to your parents and my dad was like, he want to be a smart, take him to jail. And then they did, <laughs> you know, they, they took me to jail. And I think, that was the wrong lesson that my dad should have done because um, I wind up saying, this ain't nothing. Like, whatever. That's what you want to do? Cool. And so from there, you know, now the police, not familiar with me, but, you know, I'm familiar with this process of going to jail. And then I just would get caught stealing or doing something and started going to jail and some mob action, gang fights, you would take me to jail. Um, then eventually, I snatched the gold chain off somebody, and I wind up going to jail for real, for real. Like, uh, going to jail, the county jail, and then I wind up going to prison. So that was, like, my real first thing in time in the county jail. <laughs> So, so you ended up going to prison. How old were you when you went to prison? I want to say 19, about 19, 18, 19. How much time did you do? A total of 13 months. Um, it was like nine months in the county and like four months in prison. Yeah. And w when you got out of prison... Had any had anything changed? Did you go right back to the way you were, the same thing you were doing before? Or? No, I, at 
when I got out of jail, I um, paroled to my childhood home. So my dad still owned the house I grew up when I was a little kid. Um, but he didn't live there, but he was renting it out to my uh, Uncle Bobby, which he was strung out on heroin. And, you know, my homies come by and one of them, you know, cocaine had obviously just got introduced, you know, to the streets at that time, at least for where we were. And he said, uh, man, you in a good spot right here, Andy. And before you know it, I was selling cocaine out the house. And my dad and my uncle was, my dad said, son, you need to be careful. My uncle said, word on the street, they watching this house. Because, you know, my uncle being strung out on heroin, his, he was a pimp, uh, a washed up pimp, but he was a pimp. His wife was a prostitute with a couple other stuff. But this was all downstairs, and I lived upstairs. And um, I wound up getting raided three and a half months after getting out of jail and went back to the county jail. was on my way to prison for like 6 to 30 because they raided my house and caught me with a house. Um, and back then, for my generation at that time, you you because one of my friends was at the house that morning because I was going to trade drugs for guns, and you don't do that by yourself. Uh, but it was a setup. So when I got arrested, I basically confessed. Like, hey, dude, didn't have nothing to do with it. I found the drugs. Um, and that confession was, was going to send me up, you know, the creek again. But the judge gave me a law library pass. And I spent about seven months in that law library. Six, about six months in the law library and wind up finding a way to beat the case. Took it to a bench trial and won in a, in a, in a bench trial. Beat the case. You beat the case de- defending yourself? No, I had a public defender, mm-hmm. um, Bruce Steinberg. But we would we would bump heads because I'm still an independent thinker. And when they when I when I read something that applies to my life, and I say, "Whoa, this is this will work." I got the statement suppressed. I, I made up a lie that the the, the police officer promised me um, leniency if I told him where the drugs came from, and then it was just, you know, me in a room with another person with drugs. And the, the case was People versus Wolski and People versus Nettles that basically said mere proximity is insufficient to prove possession. And it was a Supreme Court case from the 60s, I believe it was, one of them. And when I gave it to the public defender, he's like, you, you know, you're doing good work and everything, but it's an old case. Yeah, okay. So the judge, when he made his ruling, he <laughs> sent his... uh assistant up there to pick, to pick the case that I had and said, you know what, this is dead on with this case. And I laughed inside like I told the public defender to use this case. So I wind up, you know, helping with my legal defense because I stayed in them books. My, my attorney, all he had to do was draft the motions. I, I got, I took got copies of most of my whole file and I would write the judge saying, I need to dispose of the informant because once I get that then I'll be able to prove that, you know, just I, the letters I would write, which is going to be in my book called The Hood Candidate. So I got a book that I'm co-authoring with somebody that lays this all out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but then that's, when I got out of jail, that's, go ahead. That's, that's incredible. So so you beat the case. So what happens from there? I mean, do, do, you, do you still go back to the same criminal drug activity or what, what happens next? Well, um, I had barely got introduced to the dope game prior to getting arrested, being three minutes out of prison. 
So I get out um, and I go to the law library and spend three months in there. And then I start selling dope because now I knew the law. And I wound up becoming like a big, big time drug dealer. Um, moved up in the ranks in the in the street organization again. Had a very high ranking position. Um, but I was an entrepreneur. I was all about business. You know, I had a beautiful little 1980 Malibu with hydraulics on it, smoked out windows, you know. Um, and I knew the law. So the police knew, you know, if you pull Ambio, you, you better have a legit reason because he is going to bring you one. And I would. I'd be like, what you put me up for? Got a seatbelt, got an insurance card, even though it was a fake insurance card. You know, with your windows up. I can have my windows as dark as I want to because it's a 1980. And I would tell them, and they, they would not, couldn't do nothing. I'd be riding around with dope in the car, pistol in the car, and I would never worry about it. You know, I knew I wasn't breaking no laws. Um, so <laughs> that's just what I did. And then it, it, then the guy who, who started the Gangster Disciples, Larry Hoover, he came out with a new concept called growth and development and it basically was saying and, and if I take it to me Andy personal it was saying Andy you're part of the problem that's destroying the community and I remember at one point I had sold some drugs to this girl's father I mean he, I, he th this mechanic guy was real good mechanic you know had a real good job um, he was my mechanic and, you know, I'd always buy, you know, the, the kids in the neighborhood candy or, I mean, ice cream. And this one particular girl was like, I don't want your ice cream money. You know, you're the reason why my family is tore apart. And so that came out pretty much the same time. I was wondering, like, what am I doing with all this gang stuff? This is so stupid for me. And then the new concept came out and was like, you know what? We need to better ourselves. You know, we can't be destroying our community. And so that's how I walked away from the games because the leader of the organization came out with the blueprint and was like, we need to evolve better than what we're doing. You know, I've been in, so the leader was basically saying, I've been in prison 23 years and, you know, I've seen you, you know, brothers come back and forth into these doors and it's not where it's at no more, you know, and a lot of us took that, that, that concept and, hmm. you know, moved on. And that concept for me, um, it, it was shocking, you know, like, whoa, what is this happening? And I wind up, um, just doing a whole 360 degrees. It's like, it's like I have been walking in darkness my life and then a light popped on and then I could see. Like, whoa, but the people around me still were walking in darkness. Hmm. And uh, I, I had a dope case that, I, that was pending that I was going to win anyway. And I went to court one day and basically I told the judge, you know, this this is modern day slavery. What you're doing up here, you're just like the slave master. And they locked me up in a mental health center for six months, <laughs> you know, for pissing the judge off. Because I got the whole record. And, you know, it was nothing wrong with me. I just was you know, as I would say, an angry black, black man. Like I was, I wasn't a man. I was a boy. I was just angry at, you know, the system around me. And there was nobody, you know, at least that I felt could understand what I was seeing in life other than Larry Hoover and Oprah. 
than only two people and John F. Kennedy, because I went to the library and would read books about J.F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And I just started reading a lot about history at that point. So they locked me up. And then when I got out of jail, when I got out of that mental health center, that's that's when 100 percent, I'm going to say 90 percent, my life changed. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not doing this life no more for real. Mm-hmm. That's that's hard to do. Like like you were saying, you're walking, you know, your eyes are opened and that doesn't mean that everybody, all your friends and your family, everyone you're you're hanging out with doesn't mean they're experiencing the same thing. So that's that's hard to change. How did you get past that hurdle? How did you how did you, you know, knock it sucked back in? Because um it really was my spirituality. You know, as a little kid being on punishment um, I could only read this book, my book of Bible stories that the Jehovah Witnesses would give. So I would learn all the little Bible stories. Um, and then when I'd be on punishment, cause I was an altar boy growing up <clears throat> and I also do, do sign language with the church. And then, so when, um, uh, this thing, you know, went around, happened to me, I was able to draw back on that the roots of, of my spirituality and go back to Christ, go back to God and, mm. you know, walk in this faith walk that I had before. And so between the faith walk and, uh, um, the, the vision of Larry Hoover, I, I just tended to, to outshine a lot of people around me because of my understanding that I feel was just natural. Like it's just something I was born with and and it has a lot to do with my dad's example. I will I will say, you know, my dad he has a lot of faith and he knew how to provide. Like he knew how to, you know, work. Um so that's just what I, I you know went to. And then a lot of my friends in ninety six was getting killed too. Like my ex wife's brother got murdered in front of the house. Um the friend that introduced me to to, to the dope game, he had got, you know, murdered um, in fact, 96 was probably like 26, 20, 28 murders. And out of those, you know, at least 12 of them was my friend, like close, close friends. And then one day, um, when my wife's brother, ex-wife, uh, her name is Shay, her brother Lou got killed in front of my house. She, you know, was moving to Atlanta and that's what took me out of Aurora to go to Naperville. Um, and it wasn't like the, 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 the shooting part, it was the fact that I had my own family, you know, I had a, a daughter and then she was pregnant and that was, you know, kind of like where my life was going. And I was like, no, please don't go, baby. Please don't go. You know, and I had two women leave me growing up, my mom and my stepmom. I didn't want her to leave. So I moved to Naperville and got a job selling cars. And I went to church and became a ordained minister and, Started that journey. And then another thing about your your journey from your bio that jumped out to me is you fought and won a wrongful for uh, foreclosure for thirteen years. It, <clears throat> can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. So um, when I left the mortgage company, I I mean when I left the car sales, I got into the mortgage business. And I wind up um, being a branch manager for three years until I started my own mortgage company. 
So that was like early 2002, three. Um, I had my own mortgage company. We done moved into a quarter million dollar home. Like life is good. I'm a mortgage broker. I got some real estate properties. And then I get put in foreclosure. And the first time I got put in foreclosure was because I was taking on my profit, trying to be a real estate investor and, you know, working with other people. So I had to keep their name straight and I'm working all on commission and not managing the money. Right. You know, you know, they say you, you bite not more than you can chew. Mm-hmm. That was me. And then, so I reinstated that mortgage. I had to pay 20,000 and from reinstating that mortgage, um, Getting back on track, the servicer was letting loans, started stealing, misapplying my payments, forced placing insurance on my loan. Um, And I would be late, you know, like two, three three weeks late past the grace period, but never 30 days late because the mortgage was in my dad's name, in my my, um, shades. And so they filed a foreclosure. And the, 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 the reason why I started fighting, because I knew I could beat it because I wasn't behind on my payments. I had the, the paperwork to show I had made all the payments and the numbers didn't, the, my records didn't add up to their records. It's because I didn't want my dad to know I had foreclosure on his credit. Because Pop's got like 700 credit scores. Like this was going to, if he found out, it was going to piss him off. So that's where the fight started coming in. And then I just started uncovering a whole nother scheme. And they originally dismissed the foreclosure case. They went for summary judgment. And I, you know, hit the books. You know, I got experience going to the law library from back in the dope case days. Um, And they wind up dismissing it, dismissing the foreclosure, only to bring it back up two months later. Now saying I owe like $40,000 or something. They add all these extra fees and stuff on there. And then I just fought. And then I, I learned all about mortgage servicing fraud, securitization. And the truth is, I I won the foreclosure case in the fact that I helped over 200 people. I lost in the foreclosure case because the judges were not ruling according to the law. Like, my research took me across the world. I was talking to people from Good Morning America, um, Catherine Porter at the uh, University of, of Iowa. She was a professor. I had went to Florida being part of conferences. Like I met so many people about this stuff, uh, advocates, activists. And I wind up moving out of the, 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 the house because when I, I had wind up going up to, to school to learn more about the law. Just tell the judge, I'm going to show you I can win. Because I had a settlement conference with her. She said, I don't ever see people winning, you know. Your best bet is to try to, you know, work this out. I'm like, I'm not working this out with no criminal. I mean, I didn't say that then, but that's exactly what where I was at. Like, they mm-hmm. did wrong. They got to be held accountable. So I went and got a bachelor's degree. And during that time, one of the professors was a lawyer, and he wound up hiring me. And the same time he hired me to work in his law firm, was the same time one of the clients I was helping in foreclosure had got evicted. And so the lawyer, we were representing some association in the townhome I could move to. Um, so I rented the house out to that family and moved to, moved out of Aurora to Glendale Heights to a, to a townhome. And I fought it for 13 years. They stayed in the house about four or five years. You know, the judges ruled 100% wrong, uh, favor to the banks. And I was going to appeal it. 
And then I just finally just said, you know what? I'm done. Hey, help my, uh, the people stay in the house an extra year, paying no rent, you know, try to help them buy it. And then I just walked away from it. And last year I was, um, doing a credit seminar and I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit said, right before I was getting up to speak, he said, you never was going to win that case, Andy, because you trusted me. I'm like, what? Yeah. When I bought the house, I put the house in my dad's name and my, uh, shave my ex-wife because the lender I wanted to use was giving me a good rate, but mm-hmm. I had to use my dad's name because I was an account executive with this company. So they couldn't do it in my name because it would have been a conflict of interest. So I'm like, all right. You know, and that's what God was saying, you know, like you came into the deal with unclean hands. You went into court acting like you was your dad. Like, you can't trust. I'm not a conspirator with you, son. I'm like, okay. But again, I learned a lot from it all. So it was great. Yeah, that's, I mean, you've a a crazy background with so many different things you've been, you've been involved with. Um and then from there, you went on to start a paralegal service, right? So you're yeah. sort of like everything you get involved in, you, you turn into uh, you know, you're an entrepreneurial venture, it seems. You know, I just take everything to the fullest and try to learn everything I can about something. So I, so I consume it. You know, I consume the word. Um, and the foreclosure took me to the NAACP to wind up being a vice president and the chairman of houses. And I went, you know, to all the national conventions for like three, four years, only to find out, <clears throat> and I'm say this, that they were part of the problem too. Because, and I say this because Wells Fargo were, is one of the huge foreclosures people. They ran a foreclosure mill. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they, when, when the NAACP sued Wells Fargo, they settled with them for, I, I want to say, 100000 or something stupid. And, and maybe it wasn't 100000 but I'm going to tell you it was stupid because all they did was help them set up a financial literacy course at the, out there in uh, Maryland. But that didn't make all the millions of the NAACP members whole that they had stole from. Right. They, they so, took a, kick, a kickback, essentially. That's what I call it. And I don't think they knew no better. Like, I really do not believe that they knew any better. Because what Andy would have did is would have said, listen, you just screwed over all our members. This is what we're going to do. We're going to use a community reinvestment act, and you're going to help us rebuild our communities that you helped destroy. And then we're cool. If not, we're going the full way. Because, see, the lawsuit would have given a greater net than it would have the settlement that they did to set up a financial literacy. Because financial literacy does not make me whole. I can balance a checkbook. We can do the basic here. That's what my stepmom taught me, how to balance a checkbook. You know, so if you don't understand the simple basic part, that's why you are settled for something that, 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 that simple. When I'm looking at the bigger picture, it's saying, you know, millions of, of the members have lost, you know, savings, you know, uh, a retirement fund, uh, cars being repossessed, so all what, kinds of stuff. What was what was Wells Fargo doing to uh, to steal from members? Um, the foreclosures. 
So were they setting them up with uh, with loans that were? I mean, was it pre- was it predatory lending or what's 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 the story? Predatory lending, um, misapplying payments, forced placing insurance. It was a whole scheme that the mortgage services were doing all around. Bank of mm-hmm. America, Countrywide, Litton Loans. Litton Loans was the the master at it. IndyMac. Um, uh, so they all were doing that, and Wells Fargo was just part of the game plan. It. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the case right now. Um, but it was a bankruptcy case, and the judge she reamed Wells Fargo was like. You guys charging all these property inspection fees, you know, and I, like she hit them with sanctions. I want to say like a couple hundred thousand dollars in sanctions, you know. Uh, so, you know, and they were doing that um, to everybody, not just you know NAACP members. It was all across the country. You know, I had met um, <clears throat> a lot of people in Florida. This guy named David Dan that had wrote this book, uh, Chain of Title. I met him personally, and the people he had wrote about, I talked to one of them. Um, There's another guy, Jack Jack Wright, mortgage MS servicing fraud. I met him, and he had a problem with it. Was Indy Mac or one of those? Yeah, I think it was Indy Mac. He wound up dying. Stress killed him. You know, wow. just you <laughs> you see. When you're fighting for your your rights and your life, and, and again, this is what libertarians know about. Like this, this is what we are. We don't just walk away because this is what the the status quo, or the easy way is. When you fight for liberty, you won't say, "Give me liberty or give me death." Mm-hmm. And that's how my life has been. You know, that's why I consume everything because I feel like I'm fighting for my own freedom. You know, my foreclosure. I was fighting to keep my family in that house. You know, I had three daughters now. Damn, this is our home. And you can see the, the the breakup of that family, what happened to my youngest two children. Like, it just, the youngest one, like, it, it hit her so hard. And, you know, I look at her being 21 now, and it's a lot of bad decisions I made, too. But when that family is uprooted, you don't have that balance in the home. Even if it is, you know, two parents arguing from time to time. It's still good times there too, but it was a better balance. And once that separation happened, ooh, and it wasn't, you know, I, this is something I personally experienced, but then you think about all the other families, you know, people in Indiana with murder-suicide because the foreclosure crisis hit them and they, everything was destroyed, you know, fighting these judges, you know, fighting these attorneys. And it's like, where do you win? I mean, I wrote to the ARDC, I them did petition to the Supreme Court. Every every step you that you say that you could think of following the rules, I would learn them and follow them and get shut down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's when I'm like, you know what? This sucks. <laughs> you know. It sucks. So 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 how do you get from from that experience really really, you know, you in many ways, you're you're fighting you're fighting for your life, fighting for your family, fighting for like you said, fighting for your freedom. Um, how do you get from that to uh, to wanting to run for president and throw your hat in the ring into that circle? The best part about this interview is you're a believer. 
So you'll understand this. I didn't mm -hmm. make the decision to run for, I mean, I did, but it wasn't something I ever thought of. Like I've been an activist in my community for over 20 years. And on May 3rd, 2019, I was sitting at the computer and the Holy Spirit clear as day said, you want to run for president? I'm like, yeah, like, what up? You know, um, and this happened on a Friday night and I, you know, called my little sister, one of my friends, excited, like, yo, man, what you think? This is what I'm going to do. And then the next day I had was going to paint and I told my worker, Bill, I said, Bill, I'm going to run for president. He said, you can't. You're too honest. <laughs> and then the guy, <laughs> the guy I was working at his house, I was telling him, and he was like, man, get out of here. But, you know, the more and more I started talking, you know, the more and more it started making sense to him. And he was like, you you, you sound like you're liberal. And, you know, and I was scared to tell my wife because if she said no, I'm like, what? But again, I didn't have the same faith I had today back then because, you know, we this is a journey. This You know, that was last May. We over here in March now. Mm -hmm. Um but I told her Monday, after I had posted on Facebook, and started getting responses, like, hey, I'm in with you, cuz. Yeah, let's do this. And then I told her, and uh, she was at work, and she was having a bad day at work. And so I, I bet you want me to bring you lunch? <laughs> you know, I knew I had messed up a little bit. And then she was crying when I went to her. Her job was just pissing her off. And uh, I said, babe, after I listened to her, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to run around for president. She's like, well, huh? okay, well, let me pray about it. And she did. And then the next day she said, babe, I'm here for it. Let's do it. Wow. She said, I don't know. I said, me neither. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, you ain't supposed to know. That's what the trust in me is for. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you, you know. And I think so many times people, you know, feel like you running for president. They say you can't win because they look at their own belief system. And when I was at the debate last Friday, being with all these, this is like the first real sit-down debate I had. I loved them brothers and sisters on that stage because we believe in liberty. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, we're saying, you know what, I don't care how it looks, the eyes look stacked up against us. We're going for what we believe in. Just like all those 24 whatever Democrats. I mean, that to me was ridiculous, you know, because... <laughs> You should have picked the right few candidates, but, you know, I don't feel the same way with the Libertarians because we're fighting to get, it's like we're fighting to get on the ballot, we're fighting to get recognized, we're fighting to tell the people everything you're asking for, our party been representing since 1971, like, again, it's in that situation, like, can you not see, do you not read, you want a candidate to represent you, and my party stands for freedom of oppression mm -hmm. and liberty? Come on, man. That's why I be so mad at my friends. Like, you know, if you don't mention Andy running for president, you you ain't my homeboy then. You know what I'm saying? That's all you need to be talking about. You don't need to. When you talk about Bernie Sanders, Trump, or Biden, or anybody else, be like, when well, my boy Andy coming, he going to kick your all ass. He going to get you. Because I know him. I know how he fights for us. I'm fighting the police in my hometown right now. I text the mayor today. And said, look, dude, judgment coming to a war. You ought to repent. Y'all want to go to the church and get votes, but you don't want to follow the simple instructions of love your neighbor? And get on with that, dude. No. And I, I worked for the, the mayor. I used to work because the, the guy who was I was working for in the mayor's office is the judge now. 
But um, he just became a judge like a week ago. Um, but the mayor knew when I was fighting foreclosures. I don't play. I would have the banks. I sued all every last one of them banks. Deutsche Bank, Bank of New York, Mellon, all in the federal court under the RICO Act. I did. And that's what I'm about to do to my hometown. Sue them under the RICO Act for running a criminal enterprise. That's what they are, criminals. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's interesting uh, with you talking about, you know, talking to your friends about supporting you, you know, talking about you running for president and they're talking about Bernie Sanders or whoever else. You know, it's it's an interesting phenomenon that I've experienced the same thing with this podcast or with other ventures that, you know, some of my best friends don't even listen to this podcast. And, you know, they'll give me excuses that, you know, they're too busy or whatever. I mean, I have a lot of listeners, strangers that reach out to me and, and you know, thank me for, for what I'm doing, but I have good friends that won't listen to this. And it's, I forget who said it, but I heard this somewhere. It's interesting phenomenon that people that you're closest to cannot see your greatness because your greatness is clouded by mistakes you've made or just normal everyday uh, things that you do. They see that stuff and people are so far removed from the celebrity of politicians from a Donald Trump or a Bernie Sanders or a Joe Biden or whoever, they only see, you know, their best, uh, you know, their best, well, <laughs> maybe not all the time, but ideally, you know, most of the time you would see a candidate like Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or whoever, these politicians, you just see their best side on TV and you're not close to them. So you don't see all their, uh, you know, their, uh, inefficiencies or their poor qualities, things like that. So it's, it's an interesting thing. Right. Right. But I, it doesn't bother me. I, 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 you know, when I feel like when, when God calls you, um, you just go for what you know, you mm-hmm. know? And I, for me, I draw so much inspiration from, from the Bible stories like David, when he went up against Goliath, and Saul was like, here, here's my armor. You know, here's my, David was like, dude, I ain't, I can't use that. And, you know, and the other soldiers, even his, his own brothers was like, dude, you can't beat Goliath. And David was like, you don't know what I did out there in the field watching the sheep with the lion and the bear. Mm-hmm. You don't know that. That's that's what I tell, you know, you know, a lot of my friends on the other side, like, bro, they don't know about how you show up at the police station when they beat me up. They don't know about all these people you helped in foreclosure. They don't know about the people car you done bought or rent you done paid or all the things that I've done that I don't even care to even discuss. Who cares? You do it because you're in a position to do it. And I feel like, you know, being the president of the United States, it's not the greatest leader. It's the greatest servant. You know, any person that says, I believe in the message of Jesus, you don't even have to believe in Jesus. How about that? But what about his message of how Mm -hmm. he knew who he was, but he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Mm -hmm. Dr. King, same thing in the drum major instinct. He said, the greatest among you shall be your service. Gandhi, Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela. Uh, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, we can go all down the line throughout history. And we can look right now, Jimmy Carter, which I got a letter back from his, his uh, the foundation because I asked him to endorse me. He They wrote back and said he's, you know, due to his age, 
he can't meet with you. I, I didn't ask him to meet with me. I asked him to endorse me. <laughs> because he is the president that lives his life by example of serving. That's why. That's the way it should be. I, I mm-hmm. believe that. Absolutely. Let's let's talk a little bit about your criminal justice platform. This is a criminal, criminal justice uh, reform-centered show. So you talk about um, restorative justice, right? So in what ways would you, uh, would you make our criminal justice system more restorative? Do you have specific ideas or policies or, or anything like that? So not, not so much policies, because I believe the Constitution lays out everything that needs to be done. It just needs to be implemented. And the 13th Amendment needs to be um, amended to abolish slavery. And it needs to take out the fact unless there was a crime. Like, it just needs to be abolished, period. Crime or no crime. Because that's how the prison systems are, are you know, being justified in what they're doing. And I 100% would abolish prison if I had that in my power to do so. But I would not abolish accountability. Mm-hmm. Meaning I need to put you in a reformatory school. I don't care if you're 80 years old. You do something that harms somebody or take somebody for something. I need you to sit in time out until you figure it out. Repent. That's what we say in the body of Christ or be reformed, renew your mind. And we know you renew your mind because your parole agents will be former offenders. (laughs) So we know, you know, but also not just former offenders, because I think you need both people. Like you need the individual that's never committed a crime that just knows straight by the book, hey, and then you need the one that has redeemed himself because the two together will bring the wisdom, you know, like Solomon would have. You've you got to have that, that balance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I look at that, um, you know, I would decriminalize on drugs. No, you're not going to go around here selling no kilos, think you're okay with that because that's not for personal consumption. But what we can do is take a vocational school and teach the natural, medicinal purpose of the poppy, and then that's how we'll heal people from the coronavirus. I'm just saying. I'm not saying that's the real solution, but I'm just saying. Hey, it, it might be. I don't know if any, I don't <laughs> yeah. know if tried tried it yet, but yeah. If, if you use the natural plant of what the creator created stuff for, the natural resources, before man came in and tried to be God, because that's what I think. Man tries to be God, and I'm going to lock you up, I'm going to punish you. And mm-hmm. God ain't never said nothing like that. He never did that. He said redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, as well as accountability, because the Lord chastises those who we love. So we need a little chastisement when you're disobedient. But I'm not going to try to, you know, be so cruel and unusual and violate the Eighth Amendment and give you six life sentences and think I have the ability to put death penalty on you. No! You don't have the right to choose to put somebody to death. But what do you say to people, especially, you know, with you being a Christian, because I know there are, and I'm sure you've met them, there are a lot of Christians who are pro-death penalty. What, what, what would you say to someone like that? I would say, show me in the scriptures where it says, uh, kill your neighbor. Just ask them. Mm-hmm. Because last time I heard it says, love your enemies, do good to those who do bad to you. Love your neighbor. Any neighbor. I don't care what neighbor it is. Do your neighbor? Right. So how can you say 
you love God whom you've never seen, but the neighbor you see. And I give them the Good Samaritan story. Hey, what about that story? You know, show me where, anywhere in there that God is saying, eye for an eye still, take somebody's life. And I don't even know if God said it then, you know, I think the red letters give us the best story about what really was being said, you know, because I have a whole interpretation about how man do something and say, well, I did this in the name of God. And God said, listen, I'm the Lord, not God. I don't change. I ain't never told you to murder nobody. You out here causing wars, blaming it on me. And now the people think I'm a murderer. I am not. So no, I like, I feel like a lot of people read the, 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 the scriptures and don't even understand the message. It's, it's a message of hope, redemption, and love. And these stories are there so we don't repeat them. Because I know I did. David, adulterer, man, I was like, let me do what David did. I'm do the same thing. Like, that's a whole nother story about how I was a broken man, was never faithful long in the six months until I fell flat on my face and realized, Whoa, bro, you was out here kill, still, and, and destroying. John 10, 10, I was the enemy. I was the thief. That's what I was. So I've admitted. Yeah, but I overcame that. I conquered that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my past is what, what, what where I'm free from. So I share it openly so somebody else can get free. And I've helped more people that I can even talk to. It's not like I got to keep tabs on it, you know. This campaign for presidency, here's the difference between me and other candidates, and not, not libertarian candidates. My message is going to be the same November 4th as the same it was November 2nd. Because I'm about my father's business, so it don't matter to me. It's whatever the Lord's will is. Now, I mm -hmm. feel there's things that I need to do, but since God called me to this campaign, I tell him, you handle the campaign. I'm going to seek ye first your kingdom and your righteousness. You take care of the campaign because you asked me to do this. Now, I'm going to do what I got to do. I'm going back to paint now because my bank account was short. Just about bankrupt. Trying to run for a campaign. And God said, this is not what I asked you to do. So you're right. And since I started following the spirit lead, then now the door has been opening up. And, you know, I've been getting donations to supply the needs. Like, no, I don't need a huge bank account. What I need is to understand what the scriptures say when God says he take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I think I could have won the campaign for president with less than $5,000. What I think I could do. Why? Because I have the most unique story. That's why. Mm -hmm. And I got a song coming out, The Hood Candidate. The book called The Hood Candidate. Everything that I had started working on years before, it's all coming to pass right now. Because now I, I don't have people, no other choice. I, th I, think, I think you hit on something really, really important there, talking about story that libertarians miss. And uh, Mark Whitney, who's another uh, libertarian candidate who's been on this show, uh, talked about that same thing, how story is so important, especially for a libertarian candidate. Because um, that's a, a good story. Somebody that can relate to people, can relate to the common man who's been through troubles, who's seen highs, seen lows. Um, that's what a, the Libertarian Party is going to need in order to compete with Republicans and Democrats who are just buying up all the time. Um, if you have a story that can uh, bring people together, I mean, that's, that's what's going to give us a chance. 
I think so. And what my heart says, Andy, in fact, I was talking to the Holy Spirit about it today. And I said, what Barack Obama was to the Democrat Party, that's what I'm going to be to the Libertarian Party. I know I am. Like, there's nothing, and this is not from, like, pride or, or arrogance. It's just knowing great is he that is in you than he that's in the world. When I started this campaign, I started as an independent. The Holy Spirit led me to the Libertarian Party. In fact, my wife had told me this a long time ago. I bet you, you sound like a Libertarian. I never even heard of no Libertarian. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, and my wife is Puerto Rican. How about that? And Puerto Ricans can't vote. Like, so, the whole campaign, just the way I look at it, because my two little brothers that I talked about, one was gay, committed suicide. The other committed suicide on an opioid overdose. Those are personal things to me. We don't debate about why I care about, you know, human rights. Mm -hmm. You have the right to choose whatever you want to choose. Not only is that scripture, because it says Joshua 24, 15, that's for me and my house will serve the Lord. You do whatever you want to do in your house. But that's the same thing the libertarians say. Maximum freedom, limited government. Get the government out of your business. They need to stop trying to govern you. That's it. The government should be there to aid and assist the people, not to control the people. They don't have experience. If I was the governor, president or governor, anybody in that position right now with this coronavirus, I know how to make a decision that works for all. I knew what it was like to have hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I knew what it's like to have no dollars. Being an entrepreneur with a visionary. So if you're going to say you guys got to shut everything down, you better find that stimulus package that Barack Obama found when he bailed them banks out to help the average family survive. Because you're telling them they can't go to work, the job ain't making no money, especially for the small business owner, with a stimulus package. In fact, you better have that already ready. Because mm -hmm. the rent man and the mortgage company ain't saying, we ain't got no coronavirus. You better send that payment in. And see, those people don't have experience because their bank account has more than six months savings in it, no problem. We don't. We don't. Yeah. And they don't have experience. And that's that's what I'm saying. When Apostle Paul said to become common things to all men unto the weak, he became weak that he may win some. I can relate to that. I can relate how I can be content in whatever state I'm in. I can be content. I've had three years worth of savings before. Nah, they bad like three days worth of savings. <laughs> but I ain't worried about it. You know, I got a patent that's approved. Uh, approved. Um, I'm, I'm working on the automotive industry, resurrecting, you know, the old cars, Model Ts and things like that. Um, having them, I met a biochemist online today to see how to have cars run off hemp fuel and like um how how cool would that to be to have a model t because wasn't it the model t wasn't that henry ford and he made a model t that was completely made out of hemp yeah and isn't that i don't true? i don't know if it was that maybe it wasn't a model know. t but yeah but i know he he started out with the hemp but it was another guy mr patterson was was the black guy that invented the model t Ford before henry ford and okay. see this is all documented so and I, I, the reason why I bring that up is because it is the black people, which I don't really like saying black because it's not a nationality, but let's just say that they keep saying, well, we want a bailout package. We want reparations. 
And I'm saying, look at your history and you will see hundreds of people overcoming Black Wall Street millionaires and didn't get a bailout. Now, if you want the land that was promised after the Civil War, the 40 acres, that's great because I know how to implement that, which is part of the criminal justice reform. Because if you go into the disenfranchised community and say, give us the ghettos, I don't want no government assistance in the ghettos no more. And you take a person like Jay-Z, Nas, or Queen Latifah, who has an affordable housing blueprint project in New Jersey she already built, and you turn the ghetto into sustainable housing, energy efficient, and help those people with a three-year, five-year, seven-year plan, now they can pay limited taxes on the land that they owe, no longer dependent on the government, and now they become self-sufficient. Now you teach the trade vocational. They can build their way up out of poverty. But what's more better, owning the land or getting a check that you don't even know how to balance in your own checkbook now? Which one makes more sense? The land. Yeah, what it would take. Yeah. And I know it's possible because the Native Americans had, did the same thing with the reservation. So now, and then the police officers, because criminal justice reform deals with the police. If you're not living or in this community or within a five mile radius, don't police our community because I want to see you at church. I want to see you at the movie theater. I want to see you at your grocery store. So now we have a relationship. Mm -hmm. So you know when little buddy over here, uh, Laquan McDonald, is high off drugs, you're not going to shoot him 16 times because you see what he's going through at home and you might want to be a mentor to him as opposed to being an oppressor to him. Simple. But if you don't know me, you don't. You can't relate to me, you're just going to do what you see is the easiest way to do something because it's a self-hate. It's something embedded in us. We, If you love yourself, you would never want to harm another person unless you have to defend yourself, which is libertarian principles, and it's definitely God. God say, with the scripture say, turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus' job was. You're not going to come over here and try to rob me, rape my wife, and say, well, you said you're a Christian, turn the other cheek. You see how quick I turn the cheek. Come over here with that mess. Samson's going to raise up on you. <laughs> We're not doing that over here. And I make a claim. I love my family. I love my wife. You know, I love any human, just like I say at any other time. If Donald Trump came to the hood, and got lost, and my buddy saw him and thought they was going to jump on him, oh, no, I'm riding with Trump. Because he's a human. That's why. And it, it was only it. 10 years ago, maybe less than that, where uh, you know Donald Trump was named in, in rap videos, and he was... <laughs> People wanted to be like Donald Trump, but not, not anymore. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's right, right or wrong. Right. I'm just saying that's a fact. Right. But... Uh, you know, Andy, I, I want to give you some time here. And thank you, first of all, for being so gracious with your time. I originally told you 40 minutes. We're going on past an hour now. But Ooh. I definitely want you to plug um, your website where people can donate, where people can volunteer, where they can get involved with your campaign. My my website is www.awj2020.com. Sit, awj2020.com. That's my Facebook page. That's my Instagram page. Um, we're updating the website daily, but there's a donate page on there. Gives you my background, uh, my three platforms, which is uh, human rights, criminal justice reform, economic empowerment, um, to make America great. 
It's real easy. Follow the golden rule. That's general across the board. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And that's how you would make America great. Real simple. Mm-hmm. It's the simplest way. How are you adjusting your campaign now with uh, obviously limited travel with coronavirus, bunch of conventions, maybe all remaining conventions, state conventions have been canceled? Uh, well, <laughs> honestly, like I said, that's God's problem. You know, mm-hmm. he called me to do this. So I can just say, God, whatever your will is, let it be done. I got a letter Sunday from Jimmy Carter. I got a letter back today from T.D. Jakes Ministries. Um, I have a huge letter writing campaign. I wrote to Anderson Cooper, Ellen DeGeneres. I wrote to Oprah's magazine, which Oprah, I'm going to get feedback from her at some point. Because back in 2005, it's a book called The Dream Giver by Bruce Wilkerson. The book changed my life. Like I probably ordered well over 1,200 of these books. And I would give them away. You know, that's one of the, I, I would always buy books that inspire me and give them away. I negotiate the price in bulk. In fact, Billy Graham's daughter worked at the bookstore when I, I mean, at the Multinup Publishing, whatever it was. And we talked like, boom. And that's, that's who was the one. And I got the books for five bucks, cheaper than Bruce Wilkerson. The author didn't even get them for my price. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a negotiator. Uh, and I sent Oprah Studios. Back in 2005, Christmas, I believe it was, 510 of those books. And I got the card that was sent back from them saying, we received your books and we love it. Oprah and the staff loves the book. Um, That book, the reason why I sent it to, to them is because Oprah, like I said before, she inspired me, especially in 1994 when she had the Ku Klux Klan on her show. And she said, I learned from them this day. I'm like, what? Hmm. But th- those are the things that inspire Andy. You know, when it's something that seems out out, out of the norm and you're, quote unquote, praising that, I want to know where that comes from. What's up with that? And so I don't know her personally, but her platform and what she's accomplished and overcame, I, I, I love that. You know, it's just, she's inspiring to me, you know. She, she just is. Just like I, Jimmy Carter. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised to see Oprah running for president in 2024. Yeah, I don't think so. That's not her calling. Yeah. I just, I, I watch, like, I, I watch a lot of people, you know, enough. I got my favorites. Oprah's one. And she talks about her calling. That's not her calling. She, mm-hmm. She's where she needs to be at. And that's why I feel like to connect with her, you know, Jay-Z, um, it's, uh, certain certain people that know who they are, they're calling, they're like, that's Andy's calling. So we'll support him because when people know who they are and what they want out of life, they can identify when somebody else has the same calling. So it's like, no, he, he's really called to be the president. Like, I am 46. You know, this, like, we're not going to debate about what I believe God called me for. And that's to be the 46th president of the United States. Now, guess what? I'm the 46th president of the United States because I self-declared it. Now what? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Andy, thank you uh, so much for, for coming on the show and uh, for sharing your story. Um, but just as importantly for, for everything that you've, you've done in the past and continue to do in your, uh, in your community. So you are a... 
a true testament for for what a libertarian should be, in my opinion. Because a libertarian, you know, there's there's a philosophy, and then there's the action, and you're taking daily action. So thank you for that. No problem. We got to do what we got to do by any means necessary. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't say give me liberty or give me death. I say give me liberty and I have life. Because we ain't talking about death. We only talk about life. Now, nah, that's it. We only talk about life. We only talk about death. We don't control death. Mm-hmm. We make choices, not choose to live. Amen to that. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll be seeing you, talking to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's show, another great episode of Felony Friday. As you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, and just just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing for the great price of $0 per month. You get everything that we have here. So please check everything out. And uh, if you like it all, please think about, consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride you can do that by going to patreon.com slash lines of liberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash lines of liberty. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at lines of liberty. And the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to to talk about politics, liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, which you can find by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook, clicking search, comes up, say you want to join it, answer a question, bam, you're in, and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you. So check that out. That's all I have for today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.